Hello, I'm Anthony Sano. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 20. Holy crap. You made it to 20. Episode 20. A rebirth of your brain. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Welcome back if you've been here before. Uh, 20 episodes, you probably have been. And uh, if this is your first time here, you're in for a treat because this is our 20th show uh, and we're on track to talk more about brain stuff. Today's episode is A Rebirth of Your Brain. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa and I'm in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, tell people who you are and what you know. So uh, I practice integrative medicine. Uh, this is going to be my 21st year at doing that. Mostly I combine the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutrition with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, for the sake of our listener as well, you're somebody who um, has your own health challenges, things that you've dealt with in your life. Yeah. So uh, I have, you know, few autoimmune things going on like colitis and Crohn's. I just discovered a little bit of rheumatic arthritis on my thumb from actually pounding my guitar with my thumb. But <laughs> uh, I'm Anthony Santa and uh, I don't know if I have a succinct introduction to myself. Uh, somebody who's been a long time social media fan and nut. Uh, internet marketing smarty pants is how I build myself. Uh, somebody who actually knows a thing or two about uh, traditional terrestrial broadcast through community radio here in Nelson and as well uh, loving the podcast and also a uh, patient and fan of the way Dr. Michael thinks about health and nutrition. So uh, we got together and created this podcast, Fusion Health Radio, and here we are, episode 20. It's been really fun. I love doing this. So last episode wasn't about brain stuff, but this is kind of a continuation of the podcast before that episode um, 18? 17, 18? 17, 18. So 17, 18 were... We started off the series with, hello, I am your brain. Yeah, so the episode 16 was, hello, I am your brain. 17 was um, just around, like, basically how healthy is your brain by talking about the brain uh, in the sense of its uh, natural health and resiliency and kind of how it gets sick. Right. And in the next episode, which was 18, uh, we talked about, in the context of the seasonal thing, uh, the health one being about fall. Winter was more about... Um, kind of nurturing your brain through silence, through meditation, through the hibernation of winter, through uh, being really clear with boundaries in your life. Uh, we talked about a native teaching called the cold face, you know, about how sometimes um, being really, really quiet and patient with things is actually better for the situation than running around trying to figure it out. Uh, and uh, also we talked a little bit about some of the kind of deeper resources of the mind and the brain. And we did a little halftime show in the last episode right. on Qi, Chronic Illness, and You, uh, just because um, I'd had a bit of an epiphany at a conference a while ago trying to explain Qi in another way. Uh, so we spent an hour and a bit uh, talking about how Qi could be translated as circulation and communication kind of simultaneously, which covers everything Chinese medicine has to say, you know, with respect to Qi uh, and reminding people that it's not a noun so that... You know, as soon as we think of where's my chi, you know, do I have enough and can I buy some from you or whatever, uh, it takes away that westernized version of Chinese medicine where, you know, uh, chi becomes a noun because everything in English is a noun. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the way it works. Well, yeah. it was a, a very um, 
in my experience, and it was a bit of a high energy yeah, uh, podcast. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, a few uh, four letter words uh, got thrown around there. None of the really bad ones. No, <laughs> <laughs> but still, it was uh, it was definitely uh, uh, we 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 got into it, man. <laughs> cool. Uh, so today we're talking about uh, brain again, and uh, you talk you covered as you uh, understand it, uh, brain brain health with. Uh, fall and winter mm-hmm. uh, leads me to believe there's two other seasons we're going to talk about. So yes, there is. Let it rip. Okay. So in the context of your uh, health, looking at the four seasons is always, I think, a really good idea. You know, the ancestral evolutionary medicine perspective, which includes Chinese medicine's perspective, is if you grow up within the extremes of winter and summer, wherever you grow up, and you get through the strange dynamic of weather, which is, you know, more, I don't know, mutable or uh, um, hard to expect exactly what happens in spring and fall, you know, and we've, we've evolved in that, those conditions as a species for millions of years, um, then those would be really good metaphors for what it is that evolution, adaptation, problem solving would look like, because those are the problems we've had to solve up until houses with interior heating and, you know, cars and stuff. So again, it just sort of frames that thing is, you know, if you, if you want to understand something, look at it in a sense or the context of the four seasons, and you'll have a much better sense of whatever it is you're trying to figure out. So when it comes to spring, there's two sides to that. One is um, the idea of rebirth, you know, new babies coming into the world, uh, say mentally, emotionally, spiritually, having a sense of innocence or um, a willingness to just be with things as if it's the first time ever. Um, you know, with respect to, you know, your brain health and stuff like that, um, you know, that's the idea is can we have a rebirth of the brain, you know, by giving it everything it needs, maybe things that, um, you don't usually apply your, your, your lifestyle, your diet that might be just really good to boost for your brain. And we'll get into some of that later on in the podcast. So when you look at, um, I guess I'm trying to do two conversations at once here, one talk about the brain, but also kind of sneak in some Chinese medicine sort of theory, I guess. So spring relates to your liver and, um, in the sense of, you know, your liver relates to growing things. And then in spring, everything grows out of the ground and tries to get as tall as it can before fall. When we look at ourselves, you know, as people, you know, what would be a really good thing to begin doing that would help you grow as a person. When you look more intrinsically at your liver, uh, from a traditional Chinese medicine point of view, obviously it's got the job that it has in every kind of medicine around clearing things out of your blood, but the health of your eyes is considered very dependent on your liver from a Chinese medicine point of view, and that's actually true from a scientific point of view as well. Um, the health of your tendons and you know how reflexively active your muscles are is also considered to be kind of uh, an accessible thing around your liver health. And in, you know, physiology from a scientific point of view, we're like, yeah, well, of course, without glycogen, you can't get anywhere, which is very dependent on, you know, your liver. Um, Obviously, your gallbladder is a really important thing, um, you know, in the sense of your liver health. In Chinese medicine, with respect to the mind or brain, your gallbladder actually relates to two things. One is your kind of ability to have a reflexive reaction. I mean, I think the classic quote in the ancient texts is, if someone throws a rock at your head and you duck, it's a combination of, you know, the part of your, the aspect of your mind that relates to your heart and your gallbladder that allows you to have a good speed at ducking. Hmm. You know, uh, your liver is also, or your gallbladder is also associated with uh, making decisions. And a lot of people with, say, you know, frontal lobe inflammation producing, you know, a basic depression or something like that, 
you know, first question I ask people when it looks like that's what's happening, how good are you are making, you know, decisions, especially important ones, and they kind of pale and eyes get wide and they're like, um, that's the worst thing that's happened in the last few years is I just can't make decisions. Right? So we don't have to have a literal, you know, one-to-one association that it's all about your gallbladder. It's just, I think, interesting from a Chinese medicine sort of seasonal uh, symbolic point of view that all of those things uh, that relate to spring, liver, gallbladder, and your mind are all kind of, you know, tied together in a way. Uh, your liver is very responsible for a certain aspect of sleep, depth of sleep in Chinese medicine, and it's also uh, responsible for dreams, which I think when we're talking about brain health and, and stuff, you know, I think talking about dreams isn't completely off the you know subject. Uh, and Chinese medicine has an interesting point of view that parallels a lot of indigenous traditions um, that say, well, if you're having a dream about something, then a part of you, um, which we can refer to as your ancestorness or ancestors, or um, some people would say the collective unconscious, sort of from a Jungian point of view, is trying to get your attention. So say that again, if, if, um, or say it again so I can understand it. If there's something up for me physically somewhere in my body manifesting somewhere, um, I'm actually going to see that in a dream. I would say, yeah. And even more likely something that's happening in your, um, relationships, in your work, in your, I don't know, athletic stuff, you know, things that are of consequence to you. So the image I often use to kind of play this out is, Imagine that, or remember that, when you were 16 and learning to drive, you know, you're trying to figure out all the, you know, pedals and wheels and buttons and gauges and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, how fast can you drive before you start to pee your pants or whatever? First time you pass someone on the highway, eek. So we always have our driving instructor next to us, you know, often our parent or someone, and they're trying to help us do this. So let's imagine there's somebody in the backseat. And, you know, that could be you know, your higher conscious self or, you know, what we call ancestors or what you might call the collective unconscious in Chinese, it's Hun, um, or Hun, just to be really clear that's pronounced. Um, and that that being, you know, it's conscious as well as you are, it's been driving for, I don't know, 10,000 years, you know, in the sense that it, it understands traffic, it knows what every button does, it can even feel which tire is going to go out first because it's been doing this for so long, hmm. right? And when you get a dream... It's your backseat driver saying, you know, this whole thing you're doing with uh, drug experimentation or um, the situation at work or whatever, you know, or your actual car is breaking down. You're going to get dreams that are going to show you um, options to solve that problem, consequences of not solving that problem. Uh, And that's, you know, dream theory. It's all symbolic and really hard to nail down in any really literal way. Thank God. Uh, but I think it's just an interesting thing when we talk about brain health and, you know, you're doing things to improve your, your physiological health and well-being and your mindset and that aspect of well-being, uh, hopefully like lifestyle choices as well, you know, that's a consequential period of time. And, you know, you may be getting a lot of dreams about more of this, less of that, or, you know, you know, whatever happens. So I think when it comes to a rebirth of your brain, it's trying to find a more, uh, open and subtle way of using the resource of everything that your brain does, including dreaming. Hmm. And um, I don't know that I've ever heard uh, how my liver relates to uh, dreams or uh, brain activity or, or anything like that, but it's, um, I guess I'm just trying to make it clear in my, in my mind here. Are you talking that there actually is a 
physical, um, for lack of a better word, Western um, understanding of how the brain is affected by the liver and dreams. Um, um, or well, it, I, I've never thought of it that way before, but I've, I've already got an essay I could write in my head like on all the different neurotransmitters and hormones that your liver has to basically build or clear between your liver and your brain for your brain to actually not be full of stuff that it's going to have to like, you know, deal with. And I just think on that neurochemical tissue level, a dream would be just a brain fart because mm -hmm. yeah. there's all this stuff stuck there and it's got to be metabolized in some way. And we, you know, end up dancing with purple giraffes on clouds in our dreams. And, uh, <laughs> brain is no longer crowded. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, um, we're, we're talking about the, um, uh, the rebirth of the brain in spring. Spring is a, a time of rebirth. Mm -hmm. uh, liver, is there more to say about liver and how that relates? Or Well, I thought it'd be fun to just walk through the entire five primary organs of Chinese medicine with sure. respect to your brain, because if we're going to rebirth your brain, we might as well do it in every way possible. Okay. So in Chinese medicine, we talk about uh, the brain as the sea of marrow. And we have a sea of qi and a sea of blood in the sense of... Um, an imagined resource uh, that allows, you know, everything else that you need to happen to happen more consistently because you've got some money in the bank, and that would be the C, right? So your brain's made mostly of fat, cholesterol, choline, stuff like that, which we talked about in a lot of detail a couple of podcasts ago. And, you know, your bone marrow is basically made of fat and a bunch of other cells that, you know, can turn into blood, can turn into immune system cells and stuff like that. Uh, and obviously it can support your brain. So that relates to your kidneys, because your kidneys are responsible for your ability to produce what we call jing, which is, you know, a catch term for stuff that your body needs to make things happen. And your body likes to have, uh, the imagery is kind of like a bucket that's full to filling, but not overflowing, right? So your kidneys are basically the bucket. And as long as you're bringing in all the things you need around water and fats and vitamins and uh, enzymes and other things that, you know, your body needs to run, then you have enough jing. You know, a good example would be you go to the gym and do a really hard workout, and at a certain point you're going to run out of glycogen in your muscles, and then within an hour or two after stopping your exercise, your body's completely restored, you know, the, the jing of glycogen uh, to your muscles. So your kidneys relate to storage of everything, fill in the bucket, and every bucket, including your bone marrow and your brain. So, I mean, brains actually shrink, and brains actually grow back. Know, as long as you give them everything they need. Hmm. So you know, that's your kidneys' relationship with your brains. Your heart obviously relates to two things. I mean, if you're familiar with, with Chinese medicine, one, it relates to what we call shun, which would be your conscious uh, awareness of self and the world around you. Uh, and you know, if you start to fall asleep, your shun seems to dwindle like a candlelight kind of guttering out a bit. Not that it's out, it'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> You know, but it can only occupy so much space with attention, and then the space starts to dwindle. You know, if you take a drug that puts you to sleep, same thing happens. So just to give you that sense that shun is kind of a, maybe a window, and it's really open or really closed, depending on what you're doing. But it's often translated as spirit, and that becomes a noun, and then we get into this whole other thing that we got stuck with chi. Your heart relates to <clears throat> basically your mind. Actually, in Asia, when people point to themselves and say the word for mind, they put their thumb towards their chest. You know, my mind is full, my mind is unsure, you know, things like that. Hmm. So it's considered to be the source of your mind. And we did talk about the heart-torus bioelectric magnetic connection between the physical structure of your heart and how your brain actually organizes itself. So, I mean, we're not going to talk about that again, but that's in there in the sense of what Chinese medicine says about your heart. Now, obviously, uh, your heart relates to your vascular system and getting enough blood, oxygen, and nutrients to your brain. You know, so you just want to bring your heart up and say, hi, thanks for 
keeping the brain going because <laughs> that's helping. And then we have your lungs, which, um, have, I think, you know, we all say, well, of course you have to breathe to get oxygen to, you know, get that to your brain. And actually, you know, oxygen is one of the most precariously needed molecules in the production and the signaling for the production of almost every neurotransmitter. Too much, bad, not enough, very, very, very bad. Mm-hmm. And that's often like oxygen, B12, iron, and stuff like that as these background kind of building things to actually be manufacturing plants for neurotransmitters. So, you know, lungs, oxygen, brain. So let me just uh, take a bit of a segue there. Um, just based on what you said, if I breathe better, um, am I healthier? You're going to be a lot more alert hmm. and present and uh, and calm because, you know, once everything gets enough oxygen, uh, you're good. But if you are hyperventilating or running like, you know, more than 30 or 40 minutes, eventually that oxygen becomes a burden and becomes the source of free radicals. Hmm. It's the bummer thing about medicine. You know, there's, you can always have not enough of a good thing and too much of a good thing. And there's always that balancey middle place that works. Right. Right. Neat. Okay. Sorry. I just, uh, I just had this, um, Something about what you said about uh, oxygen or breathing mm-hmm. uh, just made me think of, uh, I guess, the other aspects of what we talk about um, with uh, lifestyle and mindset. Um, but it also just made me think that it's like a vitamin. <laughs> yeah, vitamin B. Yeah, vitamin, vitamin A or vitamin something. <laughs> I try to come up with vitamins for all the other letters in the alphabet. No. <laughs> and yes, there's going to be a free download telling you all of these crazy things that Michael knows about the alphabet. Yeah, well, just, I mean, there's vitamin M for meditation and right. you know, all that kind of stuff. So another aspect of your lungs in Chinese medicine has to do with what we would call uh, peripheral immunity or the part of your immune system that's always running around the edge of things, you know, the edge of your skin, the edge of the microbiome in your lungs, in your gut. Um, that term is actually a wei qi. And it kind of, the, the character for that is a, the scout of an army with a flag who's saying, follow me. Hmm. Right? So there's actually a peripheral immune system inside the structure of your brain. And um, it blows me away at how often it's actually the culprit for producing a mild kind of swelling and then inflammatory condition inside the structure of your brain, especially the front of your brain, which is almost always the most responsible physiological process or cascade for depression, anxiety, insomnia, uh, ADHD, and PTSD when it's triggered. Wow. Yeah. So if you keep pissing off the immune system of your brain, you know, if it's based on stress or substance abuse or uh, food sensitivities that you have that you may not have. And this will probably be the 30th time I've said this in the last 20 episodes, but 75% of the symptoms of a food sensitivity are neurological. 25% of them are bloating, cramping, gas, diarrhea, or, you know, nausea or something like that. Mm, and that's where we got into the whole idea of um, talking about the, the the microbiome of the gut and how that relates to brain and mm-hmm. Like bone connected to the knee bone, connected yep. to the everything bone. <laughs> and the, the bug poo that comes from an unhealthy microbiome called LPS or lipopolysaccharide is known to be the most uh, rapidly moving thing between your gut, getting through your liver, getting into your blood-brain barrier, into your brain, causing catastrophic problems over time. Mm, right. Which you can fix. Right. At least to say degeneration just implies regeneration in the next few months well and as you said it it's all about balance right yeah i mean i don't need to worry about um if i scrape my knee i don't need to worry about that thing healing it does it on its own that's balance yeah (laughs) my my body's you know i think designed inherently to um stay healthy yeah and that's true and i mean i guess i'm 
throwing that out because uh, it still happens in the world of neurology where people will say adults cannot build new neurons. Hmm. Right. So when people think of neurodegeneration, they're like, I guess I'm screwed. I mean, I've, you know, I melted my hippocampus with stress and now I've got to, you know, you know, get through the next 20 years, hopefully not, you know, falling into Alzheimer's or, you know, cognitive decline and stuff. And that's, I guess, why I'm always saying, and you can fix it. Yeah. Don't worry. Because <laughs> a lot of people are walking around going, oh man, you know, I, I broke my brain and now I'm stuck with it. I don't know if people are actually that. So we, just what you said there. So this is again, another segue. I broke my brain. I think people would get more stuck into the 25% of what actually shows up. You said 25%, 75%, 75% right. being neuro, uh, degenerative. Neurological. Neurological. Okay. Um, and 25% being gut. Know, gut bloating and all that sort of stuff. I think people live more in the experience of what happens in their gut than they do in their head. Yeah, and you don't feel what happens in your brain. You just think differently or feel differently or remember things better or worse or can focus on your, you know, task better or worse. Mm -hmm. And the, it's that cook the frog sort of metaphor where, uh, you know, the old saying is you put a frog in a bowl of water or a pot of water and you turn the stove on, gradually you'll cook the frog because it just won't tell the gradually increasing temperature of the water. Right, as and opposed that, to dropping the frog into a pot of boiling water. <clears throat> which you're going to have frogs in water all over your stove. <laughs> you know, so that imagery is is sort of meant to, you know, imply that a lot of us experience gradually changing mood, memory, focus, sleep, and other things. And it just becomes, well, I mean, what do you mean I'm a completely different person? You know, because you could see a friend you haven't seen since college and, you know, you're in your forties and they're like, man, you're like grumpy or, you know, wow, you're so smart. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> it can, can kind, of, kind of go other way, right? Yeah. Interesting. And I, I think of my own experience around how, um, uh, my disposition has changed over the years. Um, and I've, I've said this before. I might've even said it on the podcast. That I've always had this idea ever since I was a kid that whenever I saw somebody else who was upset, the first thing that would pop in my mind is like, what did they eat? <laughs> you know, whenever I see a kid that's actually like having a, you know, it's like, what did that kid eat? And it just, um, I guess relates back to what you're saying about, you know, how the gut relates to the brain and brain is the gut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so the those are the four primary storage organs. You know, your liver has stuff and it stores stuff, and then your kidneys, you know, um, they're solid and they store stuff or manage the storage of stuff. Your heart, you could say, um, your heart basically, you could say, stores blood and everything that blood carries. So those are the four really solid ones. And then you have your spleen, and it's kind of a, I don't know, the weird kid of the what we call solid organs in Chinese medicine. Uh, and a friend, actually, the uh, Warren Fisher, who I started the Chinese medicine school with here in Nelson 20 years ago, almost exactly, he was speaking at that conference too. And he did this amazing job of just like playing that whole thing out because he's the guy who like goes into the like line by line out of the Neijing, the main textbook of Chinese medicine, because he's super fluent in Chinese medicine. And he's a wicked smart guy. And he just took apart the whole spleen thing and how it actually covers everything from your microbiome to the point at which your liver actually gets the nutrient and turns it into something. Hmm. You know, so when we think of the spleen in Chinese medicine, um, the, the quick thinking person who's read maybe a very thin textbook on Chinese medicine in English is going to think, okay, it's one of the five main solid organs and it stores stuff. And it's like, well, not so much, you know, if you want to get picky. But uh, it is considered one of the primary organs of the body. Um, and it includes, from a Western point of view, your spleen, your pancreas, uh, everything that your uh, guts do between your your pancreas secreting enzymes and actually turning that into something that could be drawn to the liver. 
so that was pretty more than people needed to know but it was just so cool to you know have that reminded to me recently about the spleen mm-hmm. um so obviously it's all about getting the nutrients your brain needs into your brain but your spleen and pancreas are also responsible for insulin from a western medicine point of view and as we've talked about in every podcast so far about the brain insulin's the worst thing for your brain and insulin is due to the excess consumption of sugar carbohydrate and stuff like that sugar bad sugar bad, yep, bad. just put that on our little <laughs> Uh, logo for the podcast is like a big, big you know, graffiti thing. Sugar bag. Like a sugar cube with a little red circle and <laughs> slash through it. Yeah, there you go. A bowl of sugar with a spoon, silver yeah. spoon. Um, so the idea of uh, rebirth of the brain, yep. um, we're talking spring. Yep. Um, somewhere in there, the idea of spring cleaning comes to mind. So is there some kind of segue connection, spring well, cleaning? I think, you know, spring for me is always a time of cleansing. I mean, I've been offering this course that I uh, wrote about 15, 16 years ago uh, every spring. And it's lots of people want to do the course because it's nice to do it, you know, with some accountability buddies and to have the, you know, online support with social media and I don't know, recipe sharing and just that, that sense that, you know, it used to be eight weeks, now it's 10 weeks, like this journey of like, we're just going to clean up every system in the body, you know, um, and subsequently, obviously your brain gets the benefit of all of that because, you know, if you're not going to drink or smoke or do drugs or have caffeine or sugar for 10 weeks, I mean, your brain's basically going to go, you're an amazing, good primate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, there, there probably could be a whole bunch of other things that we could circle with the big bad. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's quite the list of there's gangsters list. we don't want <laughs> to creep around in your brain. Um, so um, let's say that we're actually on that track, yep. uh, that we're actually doing some kind of spring cleaning and that sort of thing. What would be the benefits to the brain? Well, I mean, obviously, if you're eating nutrient-dense food, you're getting nutrients. If you're avoiding all of the metabolic perturbations that we just covered, um, you know, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, blah, blah, blah. Um brain is not going to be in any way uh, messed with. So it just gets days and days and days, hopefully weeks and weeks and weeks uh, of time to just do its job from a more uh, called evolutionary, you know, consistent point of view, because it's not having anything modern thrown at it. Mm-hmm. You know, besides uh, electromagnetic frequencies, which, you know, you're going to get a tinfoil hat for that. So <laughs> it's all good. So assuming you're doing all of that stuff, and the 10 weeks has to do with neuroplasticity because if you keep, give your brain 10 weeks of consistent anything, if it's exercise or yoga or meditation or better food, your your brain finally says, okay, let's re- rewire your computer, you know, in the sense of neuropathways to the new basis of who you are. And that's, I think, it's just a profoundly uh, huge thing to be aware of, you know, that your body can change how it remembers itself. And that's so true around addiction and, and things like PTSD and stuff where, you know, I'm a, hi, Mike, I'm a, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a workaholic or actually I'm a researcherholic really. But, you know, that whole thing that we're just compelled to a behavior, if you can not fall into that behavior for 10 weeks, give or take, um, your brain is actually going to rewrite itself going, oh, well, we don't actually have that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we discussed that, I think, in length. Was it around the brain podcast as well? That sort of nine-week, the, uh, the wall that happens at nine weeks? Yeah, the neuroplasticity wall, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So, I mean, lots of good things you can be doing for uh, brain to bring it back online to, to a healthier state. Yeah, and if you were to take that 10-week opportunity, and you don't have to take my course to do it, although you could take my course to do it too, um, the, the thing that you could do to add to it would be to add... Uh, some intermittent fasting and some really good exercise like stuff that basically takes you to the end of something if it's your mechanical strength or if it's your ability to run up and down a hill or 
do burpees or something like that. Because as long as you can get to the point where you're gasping, you know, or your your muscle protein activity is at the limit of what it can do, your brain is going to basically be swimming in something called nitrous oxide, which produces something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. And the, the only word in that whole thing is neurotrophic, which means growing neurons. Right. So by doing that kind of exercise regularly for 10 weeks, your brain is going to have the neuroplasticity message that I'm always going to have enough BDNF to grow new neurotransmitters. And now your neurotransmitter neuroplasticity has its own kind of bank account, if you will, because you've given it consistent permission and motivation and reminders that this is just how you roll. You know, every few days I do something really intense physically, um, if not every day. I mean, I have patients that, you know, are trying to deal with cognitive decline. And if they do five minutes of burpees and jump, jumping back jacks every morning and then drink enough water and do everything else, within the space of three to five weeks, they notice a profound difference in, in mental clarity and function. And within about two or three months, they're like, man, this is like, it's like 20 years. I mean, I'm 20 years younger in my brain. Wow. Just with five minutes a day of jumping up and down. Uh, so that was only part of the equation though. Yep. And the other one is, and there's lots of different kinds of, uh, you know, high intensity exercise. The other one is the intermittent fasting where, mm-hmm. um, you either don't eat one day a week or, uh, the most beneficial way that I've seen based on research is, uh, you eat at noon, you eat at five or six and that's it until noon the next day. Yeah. I mean, you could have a, what's called a bulletproof coffee or a matcha or something where you take some mildly, very subtle caffeine, although you don't need this, uh, and you mix it in with some coconut oil or butter or both. And then you have that because as long as the calories are uh, fat, they're not going to uh, drive the insulin thing, right? So if you're having enough calories at your two meals a day to provide your body the 2,000 calories you need or whatever it is, um, then there's a period of time, you know, where you're, you're running digestion on insulin or partially on insulin. And then you go from a feeding state into an assimilation state that takes, you know, hours. And then you go into, go into a fasting state and that's going to happen while you're sleeping. Now, for some people, that's going to mess with your sleep because you have hypoglycemia or a few other things that uh, make that harder for you. But a lot of people, they just wake up at a normal time. And if you stay in a fasted state from, say, 8 o'clock in the morning until noon, that's only four hours. But that's four hours where another uh, sequence of things create the NOS, a nitrous oxide BDNF um, uh, drive. And it's kind of funny, you know, if you think about it, if you're doing physical activity that's super intense, that means you're in an adaptive situation. Okay. If you're not having enough food and you need to find new ways to get more food, you're in a highly adaptive situation because you're in a fasting state longer while you're wandering around during the day and your body's used to having breakfast. So it's like, okay, we better get smarter. You know, we want that breakfast thing back. You know, we're having to run up and down hills and do burpees in the morning. So crap, maybe we're doing something wrong. Let's get smarter. <laughs> so do the best things for your brain in the sense of a committed period of time to give it some rebirth. Those two are your go-to black belt, super easy, you know. And the idea around fasting, um, I mean, I've heard different things about uh, water fasts or what's that other one, the master cleanse and all these different types mm-hmm. of things. Um, is there... Is it dangerous? Like, is there too much or is there like well, a... Well, I, I recommend broth fasting. Okay. So what, uh, when, when, when I think of fasting, I, I do that mm-hmm. invariably. And it's usually on Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'll have a, uh, a 
a lupper, like a, a late lunch on Saturday, and I won't eat again until noon or one o'clock on Sunday. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's a great way to do it. Twenty four hours every week. Yeah, um, and I've done that forever. Um, I don't know if I'm any smarter for it. <laughs> well, you're a pretty bright guy, so it's not hurting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, but I mean, is there is there a kind of a detriment to doing that thing ongoing? I think you can take any good idea and it'll turn into a bad idea if you overdo it. Mm, okay. But uh, the problem I have with the master cleanse is that you're consuming small amounts of sugar all day. Right. You know, because it's got the maple syrup in it. So, you know, you may be getting a moderate shift around metabolic use of your own stored tissues to burn fat. Uh, you are fasting in a sort of a, a way calorically so your brain is going to get the signal to get smarter to get food but it's going to be muted by the fact that you know every two or three hours you're having an eight ounce you know glass of spicy kool-aid or something Mm, in the sense of you know it's got cayenne and maple syrup and uh, lemon juice and water so you know i don't think it's a bad one it's just not the ideal one for your brain right and uh listener if you're curious to learn more about what the master cleanse is you're gonna have to ask the google because that's not what we're talking about today (laughs) (laughs) dr google dr dear dear google tell me what this is um so the idea of um uh, fasting and um the intense exercise equals um i can train my brain to think that it can actually uh repair and rebuild itself and make that the sort of baseline yep Cool. Yep. Are we done yet? For that part, yes. <laughs> I just wanted to end the podcast right there. Oh, I see. On the awesome point. <laughs> well, there's a couple of dozen more awesome points. But. Okay. Well, then what's next? <laughs> we're, we're on the sort of track of, I guess, uh, spring cleaning. Yep. So one of the best things you can do to clean anything out is have more water. You know, if you want to clean out your eaves troughs or, you know, your car or your driveway, you just get a hose and clean it up. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about this in a few other podcasts, I think, but the ideal way for us to consume water as a species is to try and get close to two liters a day on average, a bit less if you're smaller, a bit more if you're bigger. Make sure you're getting the first liter in the first two hours and that you kind of sip throughout the rest of the day when you feel like you need it. And if you don't, then try and make sure you get most of the rest of the water in before supper. Not like right before supper, but like, you know, while you're cooking supper or something. Right. Well, I, what's the uh, the sort of recipe that I follow? I've got a, a mason jar uh, beside the bed um, that gets, you know, I get up in the morning and start drinking that. That happens uh, pretty darn quick. Then I have a huge smoothie or something in the morning, and then I spend the rest of the morning peeing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Marking territory. <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, if, if ever I don't do the thing in the morning, um, I am mindful to drink uh, like a glass of water. Um, like a half an hour before I eat, mm-hmm. um, just so that I, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm hungry. Therefore I must drink water. And that's taken me a while to actually figure that out because when I was a kid, I can remember thinking if I drink water, that's just going to like ruin my appetite because I was doing it right before I ate, not 30 minutes before I ate. Yeah. As long as it's about 15, 20 minutes, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Water cleans things out, cleans out the, uh, the gutters of my mind. Yeah. I mean, it obviously gives every organ, every cell the opportunity to go back to an ancestral, um, use of water. And this, I think I went into this maybe in one of the earlier podcasts, but evolutionary medicine isn't just about eating a paleo diet. It's about trying to find as many triggers as we can to return proper signaling to the body, not just to make your liver happy, but the really important thing is it changes your epigenetics. The more your uh, all the enzymes that are around your enzyme, your genetics, you know, replicating them and you know helping them do their jobs, 
I mean, the modern world is an experiment, and your epigenetic system, all of our epigenetic systems, are running around like crazy trying to figure out what to do with all the new stuff. And it's kind of like a bad slapstick, you know, you know, black and white movie from the Charlie early, Chaplin. I'm thinking something of. Charlie Chaplin, whoever you know, Abbott Costello or something, where it's like you know, just people banging into each other, making a mess. So. Um, not that I'm against the modern world. I love it. We're making a podcast. Holy cow. But uh, the more we can do things that signal your epigenetic system to go, you know, grr and purr in the sense that it's really happy, um, the less you're likely to be expressing any illness you carry the gene for. And more importantly, for most people who have a condition, the gene will actually turn down a little bit. So the gene expression would be less, uh, less driven. Right. So again, just, you know, drink that leader in the first two hours, you know, try and get through the, the next leader before supper, at least mostly. And your epigenetic system will start purring again because it's like, oh, something I'm actually used to that I can predict every day that can help me make other decisions that uh, helps us fix things. Mm-hmm. And that's including your brain. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the idea that I came up with when you first started introducing water, um, is that water is like the grease that makes everything moves, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of silly, but it's what sticks in my mind. And I think about how, um, if I don't have that, how nothing moves, nothing. It's nothing. like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one yeah. end or the other, yeah, you know, yeah. nothing in between the ears and nothing out my butt. Yeah. Not nothing. Yeah. yeah. You know, we talked so much about circulation in the previous podcast, you know, as a, an essential aspect of what we call chi, mm-hmm. you know, so obviously enough water. Good. Yeah. So when we look at water as a you know fairly easy to access benign thing, you know, that's not rocket science. The next one, it's often harder to get people to swallow, you know, metaphorically or intellectually, <laughs> and that's eating a lot of fat. Fat is good. Yeah. Well, you're made of it. Your brain's made of it. Every cell has a bilipid layer or a you know bifat layer. So the idea that a low-fat diet is a good idea is, I don't know. I just want to make weird cuckoo faces, but no one's going to see my weird faces. So I'll just say cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what's important about fat is getting the right ratio and, and amounts. I mean, I would, I literally would have to have um, a chalkboard or a um, PowerPoint thing to make this completely easy to, to see. But we have saturated fat, we have unsaturated fat, and then we have polyunsaturated fat. Right. And if you were to decide to put those as columns in your head, or if you want to do a lot of napkin wherever you're sitting or something like that. Um, when you look at the list of different fats that are available in nature under the S saturated fat, you know, column, you're going to have ones that are four mole- molecules long, six, eight, 10, 12, all the way down to like 28. Right. So under the S, there's this really long list of, of fat molecules of lots of different sizes. When you look at the monounsaturated fats, there's quite a few of them, but they, they only start showing up around 12 lengths of what we call carbon lengths. Um, and then there's a few that go down, you know, in, into the, the twenties, but they get more and more rare and they're less about food, more like industrial, you know, solvents or something. And then if you go over to the P column, the polyunsaturated group, um, there's only like three or four and they're all down around the twenties, right? So if you just look at mother nature in the sense of what she wants us to eat, well, there's this giant long list of saturated fats, this moderate, you know, list of usable food-based uh, monounsaturated fats, and a few tiny little, you know, polyunsaturated ones, two of which are essential to life. You can't, you can't make them yourself. You have to eat them, mm. right? So when people talk about health and, you know, fat, it's like, notice what mother nature looks like. And that ratio is actually very close to the ratio of fats available in breast milk. 
Wow. Right. So, you know, if you're looking at how much fat and what kind of fat you should eat, well, butter's back. <laughs> Coconut oil is good for most people. Um, you know, other kinds of fats. What's important though is that you don't wreck it through temperature. Right. So it's better to, uh, this is a gourmet food thing, little, you know, health food tip. Um, in gourmet restaurants, you always add the tablespoon or teaspoon of butter to the meal just before you put it on the plate. You stir it in. And there it is. Just before, you, sorry, just before you serve it, you mean? Yeah, just before it gets handed to the, well, it actually gets put on the plate, then put on the pass for the waiter, hmm. right? So as soon as it gets to the table, you know, and gourmet restaurants are like military situations. They're really precise about how long everything has to happen, and you know, you get your meal at just the right temperature and all that. Anyway, so if you're eating a gourmet meal, the first thing that touches your tongue from the first spoonful of the thing that has the butter in it is a fat that actually is so beneficial to digestion um, because it, it makes your pancreas secrete 10 times more enzymes than it would otherwise to the meal. And the shortest chain fatty acid actually is burned as a fuel source to drive the digestive process itself. So for people who say eating saturated fat is bad because it's going to turn into cholesterol and clog up your arteries, it's like it doesn't even get into your bloodstream, dude. So... Hmm. Back to the books for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is like second year stuff. You know, we've been running on this paradigm for 60 years. A paradigm that's um, uh, more marketing than it is medicine, I think. Yeah, it was actually funded by people selling seed oils so mm -hmm. yeah. and vegetable oils and that kind of stuff. So, Right. Um, anyway, so I'll stop spanking science. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, water and fat. Part of the, uh, uh, the good things that uh, go into the body, which mm -hmm. affect brain health. Yep. Uh, what else is on the list? Um, reducing inflammation. So I had mentioned that depression, anxiety, insomnia, a few other things uh, are made worse by inflammation in the frontal cortex of your brain, which is now proven to be true. And it's actually been proven that SSRIs, the antidepressants we use, work more as an anti-inflammatory in your brain than they do at fiddling around with serotonin. So hmm. in inflammation bad. So that's inflammation in your brain, which is going to happen usually because of immune system dysfunction and inflammation in the rest of your body. So everything you can do to reduce that, the better. You know, there's a recipe on my website for something called uh, high-potency golden milk. And I actually manufacture that for people now. It's been really fun to be making supplements for people. And the benefit people get from taking something that's that anti-inflammatory to your whole body and your brain, it's just, you know, like days go by and people are like, oh, Maybe I'm not going to have to go on the steroid or the pharmaceutical or the whatever. It's a, uh, a very potent um, Ayurvedic medicine too, is it mm -hmm. not? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to get the, I mean, to do the math, you know, there's this thing called curcumin, which is a really good uh, anti-inflammatory because it signals one of the molecules that actually tells your body to keep getting more inflamed to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. Problem is turmeric and curcumin in the sense of digestion do not absorb very well at all. So instead, if you just take turmeric capsules, you're going to get 3% of the curcumin, maybe 5 if you've got a really kick-ass microbiome and pancreas and stuff like that. When you cook it properly in water at the right temperature for a period of time, and then you emulsify it in fat at a low temperature for the right period of time, now you've made the curcumin, um, uh, I think it's 2,000 to 8,000 times more bioavailable. I think yeah, I think it's 8,000 because it's in the fat. 2,000 if it's not in the fat. Wow. That's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. It's good stuff. I mean, it tastes like chive. It's a bit bitter. You can always add a you know, dollop of honey or something in there, but um, I like it. Mm, wow. I'm still here. Very cool. <laughs> 
Uh, integrativehealthsolutions.ca. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's not in the recipe section because it's actually an article about all the spices that are in it and how they work and all that stuff. Well, let's just take a second here to let people know that, uh, you and your practice and things that you blog about and things that you put up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the podcasts are there as well. Uh, yeah. Podcasts are up on the blog. Right. Uh, I think I'm a couple behind, but um, yeah. and I need to start making better introductions. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, if you want to find out more about whatever uh, Michael's uh, doing in his practice, uh, integrativehealthsolutions.ca is the website to look at. Yeah, we're, uh, the next time we're doing the 10 Weeks to Abundant Health is, I think, the 22nd of March, going into mid-May. So uh, that'll be up on my website probably within the next week or two. Cool. Great. Um, back to the brain. Yeah. So brain and um, water, fat, good. Um, producing inflammation, good. Yep. What else is good? Um, well, there's this thing that happens uh, all of the time, but especially while you're sleeping called glymphatic cleansing. And that's a, there's a, a lot of sleep researchers and, you know, thinkers and stuff like that that are still trying to figure out why we sleep. Like, you know, we do it, other animals do it, but, you know, what's its real deep function? And uh, the two main things are lymphatic cleansing of your brain in the sense of your lymphatic tissue, you know, pulling out any kind of waste tissue. And when you're sleeping, your body basically rewrites the important memories as real memories and clears off anything distracting. So it's a... Um I'm thinking of a restaurant when they reset between lunch and dinner. Uh, in a way, I guess my mind was thinking there's a guy in your brain that's running around trying to build train tracks that are really solid and they're going to last a long time. And there's a guy with a weed whacker trying to get rid of neurons that, that just don't seem to be really that useful. Okay. You know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, essentially it's um, getting back to the whole concept, the idea of cleaning and uh, resetting and repairing mm-hmm. and yep. Um, restorative type yeah. things. So, uh, I mean, get into some good sleep hygiene. We might need to do a podcast on sleep hygiene. I think we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, it's, I think in my, the new book that's coming out, it's like 20 something pages of things you can do to, uh, directly impact how your pineal gland manages sleep. Hmm. Well, there's a podcast. Yeah. Sleep 101 with yeah. Dr. Michael Smith. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have to make it really interesting so no one falls asleep. Yeah. What's next on the list? Um, well, the, the, your pineal gland is considered to be a master gland. Like it basically takes a few bits of signals from the brain, from the hypothalamus, other things. Um, but it actually makes so many really intrinsic decisions around your metabolism. Um, and basically how you deal with stress, you know, obviously how you sleep. But interesting thing about, you know, the pineal gland specifically is, you know, we're all, we all think of the brain as this really, you know, interesting thing that's in this blood brain barrier that's separate from the rest of the body. And that's true. But your pineal gland is not separate from your body. It has the same amount of vascular contact in the sense of cubic centimeters of, uh, as your kidneys do. And that's a lot. In fact, that's a really, really heck of a lot. And it's nowhere near the size. Yeah. <clears throat> and what happens with chronic inflammation, uh, dysbiosis, uh, causing that LPS to get into your, your blood supply and stuff like that, is chronic inflammation and uh, irritants like ammonia or lipopolysaccharide, um, they cause membranes to become calcified. And obviously your pineal gland is very exposed, you know, naked on a beach, <laughs> staked down to the brain, help, get me out of here. <laughs> uh, and everything that's going through your blood supply is going to directly impact your brain. And they discovered this back in, I can't remember when, but there's actually a Latin term that translates as brain gravel for the stuff they found in the pineal gland of people who had, you know, died of whatever, um, you know, so... Cleaning, cleaning out your pineal gland 
um, uh, around calcification is uh, an interesting thing. I've been looking at the research of what people who have their proponents of that. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of it just has to do with visualization and getting enough sunlight and a bunch of other things and maybe singing and stuff. You know, I was hoping for someone to come up with, oh, yeah, you just take some N-acetylcysteine and you this a bit of that, and you're off. still waiting for the really easy, practical, <laughs> go-to thing. Uh, but obviously everything we've talked about this far uh, around stabilizing your insulin and, and um, getting rid of inflammation and giving your body mostly what it needs in the evolutionary context is, I think, the best for anything, no matter what the conversation is, including your pineal gland. Yeah, well... I don't know how it adds up in your mind, but I'm going to put this out there and you tell me. So if I'm cleaning up everything in my body and my body is cleaning up everything that happens in terms of my circulation and blood and the blood ends up in my brain, then it's going to clean up whatever is in my brain. That's the idea. That's why cleansing is, Yeah, I don't know, everybody who's got a a website that's into health probably has a cleanse protocol or plan or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, so that was pineal gland. Um, yep. is, you said it's, it's, there's, there's aspects to that around visual, visualization, mm-hmm. even though I can't say it. Um, I've seen different YouTube videos that are about, um, meditation and binaural beats and just different things that actually pineal gland cleansing. Mm-hmm. Just search that on YouTube and I'm sure there'll be something that comes up that might actually, I don't know if it works or not. Well, but. let's, let's make that something we're going to get into when we find enough fun stuff to talk about your pineal gland. Cause yeah, okay. I mean, if it's, you know, technically your third eye and it technically does actually respond to light through your, like your head, mm-hmm. like, you know, if you have your eyes, you know, covered, um, you know, this isn't hard science conversation now we're getting into the woo woo side of things, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, anything you can do to improve your third eye and all the chakra stuff. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years. It's, you know, metaphoric in a way, but super valid. So Yeah, and super another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, back to the brain. Back to the brain. So I think the next thing that um, is a very common sense thing, especially as we get past like 40s and 50s into the 60s, is if you're not constantly using the process of learning new things and working with things you remember, uh, then those attributes of your brain are going to shrink. I mean, there's this thing I'm discovering more and more uh, in the last couple of years uh, that all of the things that are driven by the efficiency to survive starvations are all of the worst things that we um, are dealing with in the modern world. You don't use your muscles, they go away. You lose tone, you lose metabolic rate, right? You don't use learning pathways. Your body just debrides the process. It's like, well, we're not doing this anymore. We'll just shut her down because we don't want to have that running. You know, it's 16 calories a minute. So, you know, shut her down, buddy, because we've got, you know, we've got starvation memories. So, (laughs) you know, so there's all these systems that are just based on, you know, what if there's a famine because there's been enough of them that uh, you actually have to work against the efficiency of your body by doing exercise, by doing crosswords, by learning a language or a song or how to juggle or whatever, because otherwise your brain and your, your physiology says, let's be efficient. And you're fired. You're fired. You're fired. We'll hire you back if you're needed. Yeah. Uh, my dad's 86 this year and he's uh, pretty, uh, pretty proficient at uh, Facebook. Right. Cool. <laughs> Uh, in in two or three different languages. Nice. Kind of English, yep. which is always fun to see him post stuff. A uh, little bit of Italian and uh, his dialect. But that, that all comes back to the idea of uh, use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So. Mm. 
Use it. Use it. Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, next. Um, learning to either, um, well, I would say it's all about getting a sense of how f- important focus is. Focus is an eyeball focus? Uh, yeah, well, being able to focus your eyes, focus your mind, uh, your attention. I mean, this could be meditation. It could be uh, painting. It could be anything where you actually have to not be distracted, you know, because we have linear kind of problem-solving, you know, neural pathways. And then we have these big associative, you know, look, there's a butterfly, you know, kind of pathways. And uh, you have to develop both associative, you know, process and more linear process. And as we get older, you know, so many of the things we do day by day, you know, if you're a person who likes toast and peanut butter jam and tea, I was just thinking my grandma, that was her morning thing, was a cup of tea with peanut butter toast. Uh, so much for that. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> things right? I wish I didn't know about peanuts and bread. <laughs> but, you know, that's where old people have the most actual damage in the sense of falls, burns. Um, their sense of taste and smell sometimes diminish with age. So they end up eating food that's going bad and then they get an infection and stuff like that because we're not focused on the moment. We're doing something that's, you know, got 67 years of tea and toast for breakfast. So, you know, I'll be in the associative realm of what to do with my day while I put my hand into the toaster by accident. Okay. So focus is really important. And this is around the, the neuro uh, pathways, neurotransmitters and stuff like that. If you're not learning to keep focused, the efficiency thing will take your neuroplasticity of what focus is for and just, you know, mow it down with the weed whacker over time. Because, I mean, like I said, use it or lose it. Um, there's something that I just started taking a while ago called uh, vinpocetine. Um, it's not the one that's, you know, sort of touted in social media as the, was that movie Limitless? Mm-hmm. This, you can have 98% of your brain turn on. This thing is just a good anti-inflammatory for your brain and body, but it's really good at improving vascular, um, dilation in the brain. And I know if I take this stuff an hour later, I'm really smart mm. and really present and really calm. Mm. It's, yeah. It makes coffee look like, I don't know, a crack addict. You know, Chihuahua. <laughs> what will I feel like if I have Impositine, a Jedi? What will I look like after a double espresso, Chihuahua? <laughs> Interesting. And um, this is something off the shelf, or is it uh, yeah, you can. You can uh, it's a prescription drug in Eastern Europe where they first discovered it. Uh, in North America, you can just buy it in a health food store. Wow. Cool. Uh, the movie Live in This um, was uh, very curious to me when I saw it because I thought it was one of the, I guess the first times that I sort of saw that, because um, we're talking about brains, that mm-hmm. you can actually do things to your brains to actually um, affect yourself in a good way. Yeah, because absolutely. so much of what I'd seen, I guess, in my life and in, you know, uh, social media or movies or that sort of thing. It's like, I can drink myself into a drunk coma. <laughs> you know, like you can do things and make your brain um, go short circuit and kaput mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, I'm going to take this thing and be like super smart and like bing, 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 bing. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious if you find out what it is that's uh, being touted as this is the drug on limitless. You can get it now. I can't hit any more annoying 67 page long buy-in sales letter so i don't even hit anything on the social media anymore i'm just i'll wait until somebody actually like publishes an article about what's in it how it works yeah i'm not sure yeah so if it ever 
you know, you're bored one day and <laughs> follows that little mouse down its rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, a few more things on the list. Um, yeah, so same thing with, um, and we talked about this quite extensively in the last podcast, so I'll be quick. Um, neuropathways are also going to do the same thing around be robust or be weed whacked to the least uh, amount based on the efficiency protocol. Um, and that's true around communication as well. You know, and, and I mean, big, biggest part of communication is paying attention to another person, their facial expressions, their body language, their intonation, because it's a fact that 61 plus percent of the information we get in any conversation isn't from what they say, it's from how they say it. As you're saying that, I'm, I'm distracting myself with the idea of um, how, when I first started doing podcast and broadcast, how exhausted I was after doing a 15 minute interview. Um, because I was so like laser focused <laughs> at this person and what they were saying, hmm. uh, plus all the other technical things I needed to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I totally get how the idea that communication improves the neuroplasticity and over time that develops a stronger muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because now I'm able to do these podcasts with you yeah. and keep up. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> So there's a thing that I bring up with patients a lot, and I know we're getting past the usual hour for our uh, time, but I think this is of enough benefit. It's worth you know asking people to hang on for a few more minutes. But there's a thing in communication that all of us eventually come to learn. We've either learned it or we haven't, and that is that communication is inherently consensual. Right. And if we're in a hurry and we're texting and we're, you know, doing everything we can and we're trying to have some kind of conversation, communication with someone, and it may or may not be really important, um, we may either be, you know, half in, half out of a conversation, which could be construed as rude. Uh, we may miss something really important because we're not aware of their body language and intonation and stuff like that. Um, but more importantly, you know, we're not actually really present to the consensual thing that's happening. You know, and if you're a person who thinks really fast, talks really fast, uh, has a lot to say, and you're not really listening to the person you're having a conversation with uh, because you've already come up with your response before they're finished talking because you just saw a YouTube video about that, so you're just going to regurgitate everything that's, you know, in your frontal cortex waiting for a chance to be, you know, burned in. Um, we end up being really bad communicators, you know, but as we realize every conversation is a consensual thing, you know, then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I'm going to make sure this is as good for you as it is for me, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way good consensual sex would be, mm-hmm. right? So, and I'm not saying that in the context of non-consensual, I'm just saying that consensual is something you can practice and improve and deepen. And if it's sexuality or having a conversation with, you know, your lover or your parent or your kid or your boss, you know, if you're always saying, I wonder if I can make this really good for this person as a conversation, you know, mm-hmm. that becomes this complete, like, it's a, it's like a, it's a, it's a, if we were to have a life hack, that would be in the top 10 life hacks Yeah. of, of lifestyle and mindset, which is, I'm going to make this conversation great for you somehow. As I learned that concept years ago, I think it was a landmark, uh, right. class. Right, right. The idea was, and if you're a landmark person out there and you're listening and I'm wrong, please let me know. But this is how I remember it. Uh, the idea was, uh, already always listening. Uh, when, when in conversation with someone else, I'm already always listening to the conversation in my head about this cool YouTube video that I'm going to talk to you about, um, just based on what you were saying. 
Um, but I'm listening to the conversation in my head, practicing and correcting my grammar and doing all these different things that I need to do to get the idea out in the way that I want, which means I'm too busy to listen to what you're saying. Yeah. So it's yeah. a practice. I mean, one good thing that happens, you know, cause I know I've spent enough time rehearsing conversations in my life that mm-hmm. I go into the conversation. They didn't get the script and I'm, I'm, you know, scrambling to keep up because there goes the script down the back alley, like a, you know, newspaper in the wind. You know? <laughs> but I had a really great quip for that, <laughs> you know? So uh, probably a more efficient thing to do is, you know, if you have a conversation with someone and you want to see if there was a way for you to evaluate how it could have gone better, I think rehashing a conversation closely, you know, proximal to when you had it. Yeah. I didn't get to say this. I should have said that. And I was, you know, I got distracted by what I thought was funny and maybe I'll just try and tweak out of it next time. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're becoming a conscious communicator. Right. You know, and everybody loves to have a conversation with a conscious communicator and obviously the, you know, drum roll, if that's going to sound like a drum roll or a hurricane through the microphone, um, wouldn't that be an amazing thing to start with yourself? To be in conscious communication with yourself. I'm going to make this the best internal dialogue I've ever had. Wow. There we go off in outer space. Yeah, but all of a sudden you stop talking to yourself because the best internal dialogue you're ever going to have is just to sit there and go, oh, I'm present to life. <laughs> I forgot I could do that. Yeah. Yeah, well. Unless you actually are trying to work something out. You know, you had a conversation, you're rehashing it. Why am I so egoically driven to talk about my, you know, new certificate or something? Um, oh, well, that's why, of course, because I'm having a kind conversation instead of an impatient judging conversation with myself. You know, without tooting our own horns here, I think that's what makes this podcast work, mm-hmm. um, is that um, you're able to articulate, you know, all these 25-cent words, and I'm just right there with you catching on to what you're saying, um, really making sense of it in my own mind, stopping you when I'm not clear on what you're saying. But it's because somebody else is listening that it forces me to be um, way more present to this conversation than otherwise. Um, in theory, it forces me to be that way because I, I am that way anyways, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's just how it works. Like the, the, the whole example of um being present to each other as we're talking and the dialogue going back and forth um and me nodding my head more than going uh-huh yeah right every time you say something mm-hmm. means I'm, I'm actually listening you know it's actually sinking in it's actually filtering in it's um one of the things i learned around broadcast is that when uh, interviewing someone um as they share something and as they're talking for me to be going oh wow that's cool oh neat or like expressing my own sort of like little opinions or quips about that sort of thing the listener um, doesn't care about me as the interviewer they care about what the interviewee has to say so make them look and sound the best possible and that means pay attention to them uh, offer some sort of body language if you can if they're in the same room that actually indicates that you're listening but don't be interrupting them don't be adding little um uh voice ticks at the end of everything they say or punctuate every sentence that they say because you don't need to um and when i first heard that concept i thought it was really bizarre but after listening to examples of me doing that and me um not doing it so the ones where i'm actually more like uh-huh yeah right oh cool yeah that kind of example versus the ones where i'm not saying anything um the ones where i'm not saying anything actually feel more like i'm engaged with the person that i'm talking to because i'm not 
in this sort of verbal diarrhea dialogue that's ongoing that's that's leaking out of my mouth as I'm talking to the person. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's kind of a uh, a big segue around the whole idea of, um, uh, I guess, communication, but it's, it certainly yeah. sticks I mean, in my mind. I mean, I guess I'm just reflecting back. I mean, if you're going to have a really great conversation, it's going to be about watching the other person's experience of it. If you're going to give a really great interview, it's going to be making sure that what's coming through, the reason why the interview needs to exist anyway is coming through. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a practice and it's free. I mean, there's so many things in life that you can just decide, okay, I'll just make this the best conversation for my ex-partner as we deal with, you know, kid stuff. Yeah. And once that becomes a conscious thing, everybody notices that you're, you know, present, kind, you know, cogent of what's going on, you know, careful with how much you flog them around opinion or, you know, whatever. And, you know, for me, it's, it's all about being comfortable. You know, if, if I can walk into any conversation in my life, even say with my son's mom and, you know, we split up a long time ago and go, well, I'm sure this will be comfortable because I'm not a jerk and I'll, you know, mm-hmm. move with whatever needs to happen. And so there's just sort of one other thing that I think is super uh, potent as an opportunity. Um, and this is based on neuroscience and lots of, you know, frazzled rats and stuff like that is we need a certain amount of predictability to handle any kind of chaos. Sorry, so that again, predictability to handle you chaos. Need, you need a certain amount of predictability. And for some people, let's say that's 10 things a day to handle one thing a day of chaos. Other people, as long as they've got two things that are predictable, they can actually go out of their way to find chaos. Hmm. Right? In the sense of bungee jumping or, you know, gambling at the casino or, you know, stuff that's uh, kind of a woohoo for the brain in the sense of brain chemistry and neurotransmitters and obviously neuro, uh, neuroplasticity. So... Um, some people are the rats that need a heck of a lot of predictability to be able to be calm, to be comfortable and to put into practice anything we've talked about, even, you know, intermittent fasting or stop using excessive alcohol or something, right? If you don't have enough predictability, your fear of chaos is going to compel you to keep doing distracting things or predictable things, even if it's drinking alcohol, you know, bad for me, but at least I know the consequences. I'll keep doing it. Right. Um, and I mean, I mentioned this already, but you know, each of us at some point is going to need to figure out our, you know, P to C ratio, our predictability to chaos ratio, you know, and you know, I mean, I think in a way we all have a kind of a similar average though, that if you have enough predictability, it's going to start to seem cloying and you're going to look for chaos. Hmm. Yeah. You know, but I would always start with, make sure you're getting a bit more than enough predictability where you're actually bored with it and you're feeling creative and like you want to try something different. The uh, movie Walter Mitty comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that one, but somehow it's on my list. You know, but it's just to say that's one of the most important things around stress. The more stressed you are, the more predictable things to be need to be so that the part of you that's afraid of the next chaotic stressor isn't running your brain because mm-hmm. that's what happens to everybody. And then you're now clinically suffering from anxiety. Right. And anxiety is all about uh, what if. Yeah, it's when's the next bad thing going to be and how bad is it going to be and can I handle it and how bad would it look and how, how, how much, because we're monkeys, you know, like how much are people going to judge me if I can't handle it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it's, I mean, I'm going to do this as a bumper sticker or a info. What are those things called? It's a, a picture with some words on it. Infographic, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. So an infographic would be anxiety is the understanding that uh, solving the future is going to make the present better. 
Say that again. Anxiety is the belief or misbelief that solving the future is going to make the present better. Yeah. And that's insane, which is yeah. why it's considered a psychiatric condition. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, each of us has got our own relative scale of anxiety in the sense that I'll just worry about the future right now and screw now, I've got to do this thing because I'm compelled to. Coming back to like, this is the rebirth of your brain. You know, that's a possibility. I really want to like passionately put that through my voice. You know, it is possible to completely restructure your brain, even if you're over 65. You know, doesn't mean you're going to end up with a brand new one. Like, you know, it's not your brain, but you can rebirth it. You can regenerate it. You can clear it out and you can turn it into the place you actually have always wanted it to be. And that includes your mind, heart, called spirit, whatever, you know, but it's just deciding to decide. I'm like, okay, let's put into this practice all this stuff because the benefits are so amazing and you feel it almost right away. And within 10 weeks, you're that person. It sounds like getting away from the passive Western approach to health. Um, and those, I say, those I, guys keep blocking. It's driving me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, 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 um, going to the doctor and asking him why uh, something isn't working as opposed to uh, asking yourself mm-hmm. um, or being curious enough to say, Hey, this isn't working. Well, what's going on in my life that is, uh, this doesn't work. Yeah. You wouldn't get that question answered in a, most Western doctor's offices. You're just going to get this treatment for the symptom that is bothering you because of your disease. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a treatment. It's a symptom management process Right. for the most part. I mean, obviously science is amazing. I love it. They're, they're doing their best, but standard care is kind of hit this weird kind of rut. Yeah. And most doctors are very dissatisfied with the ruts. They're not saying I'm so lucky I get to see patients and first we can talk for seven minutes about one to two things. That's it. Hmm. You know, they, they didn't design that. The people trying to pay for it did. So the idea of uh, rebirth of the brain and uh, spring cleaning is hopeful yeah it's very uh optimistic to to hear you talk about how um there are things that can be done even one or two things you know it doesn't have to be the whole list you don't have to be all the way uh into this podcast to have done something good for your brain you could have stopped (laughs) 10 minutes in yeah and then uh the one for next week uh it's going to be the one about summer in the brain um i'm going to basically go through all the things you can do and supplements you can get and specific you know very specific things you can do to actually flourish your new brain to make it grow and flourish you know, in, in the sense of all the things you could do with your life. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I keep seeing these ruts of, okay, this is usually what happens. This is Tuesday and it's going to happen like this. And I know that's okay, but I mean, at a certain point you want to get out of all the ruts and look at the vista of opportunity and possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, in that, is there some part of the conversation that will talk about things that um, are good, but are you going to talk about the things that are bad like we keep sort of swinging them in the conversations you know, okay like, yeah i mean you don't you don't actually need a list of caffeine sugar alcohol blah 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 i think we've said that in every podcast so. right. okay Just <laughs> you know i think fried foods would be bad for your brain because now the fats aren't really you know as useful as a molecule and maybe misused in some corroded state right um yeah but i would think basically like basically all drugs in the sense of recreational stuff, uh, except for medically used cannabis, which has eaten, that would, wouldn't be for me a drug anymore. Um, and again, like you said, caffeine, alcohol, sugar, those are all the bad. Although caffeine does have some potentially positive things for your brain, you just need to take it as something that's a very slow released, 
you know, a uh, version of it like matcha, you know, mm-hmm. unless you just feel like, you know, the meal kick up the adrenals of, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you want some kick-ass coffee. There you go. <laughs> Which is actually a brand. It is. I was like, isn't that from like the other side of the province? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Invermere, I think. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and for you Americans listening. <laughs> get it's another there. small town in Kennedy you'll probably never go to. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like you're missing out. Uh, I think we're done. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Can we wrap that up? Yeah. But I just want to add one thing is you were talking about I wonder if we could have a conversation about you're the interviewer, man. If there's a conversation you want to have, just ask the question <laughs> anytime. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I like the, uh, I've noticed my behavior in the podcast where it's usually towards the end of the podcast. All of a sudden I sort of get all excited and start spouting off all these ideas and things because my mind is just ping ponging around after soaking up all the information that you've been talking about. Uh, my brain actually comes to some sort of conclusion and says, Oh, it's like this. Blah, 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 and there it goes. So, and uh, that's what everyone's doing at home. So you're just helping them do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, I mean, in, in all of that, I think, um, um, there's definitely room for more conversation, uh, sideways conversations, other podcasts, uh, dialogue, uh, through, uh, Facebook or however it is that people engage with us. Yeah. I'm really, really curious of anything people want to know more about because yeah. you're just helping me dive down another rabbit hole of research. So yeah. It's for me, that's a, you know, like a goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. And you know, uh, t- t- we should tell people as well that, you know, whether you like what we say or not, we want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Any kind of reaction is a good reaction because, um, we just, I know, I know I learn when people, um, uh, come up against whatever it is I'm thinking. Cause I always go to the place of like, well, why do they think that as opposed to, Oh, that goes an idiot. Right. Cause only guys are idiots. Cause girls aren't <laughs> anyways. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even our podcast. Okay. There you go. Uh, this wraps up uh, today's episode of fusion health radio. And as I said, we want to hear from you. Um, uh, you can look for fusion health radio on Facebook, search for it there. You can definitely leave comments and ask Michael questions. Uh, and please do offer your own ideas for a fusion health radio podcast topic of your own. Um, you can also find fusion health radio podcasts on iTunes where you can subscribe and access the complete library of our podcasts. And while you're there, please write us a review because, um, that's what makes the podcast world go round. And we're having a new fun special offer, uh, just to, do a social experiment, if nothing else, is if you can do a, um, a review and it doesn't matter if you have a, you know, raving review or it's a middling review or scathing review. <laughs> if you take the review and you post it on the uh, Fusion Health Radio Facebook page, um, I'll send you a, uh, I'll have to figure out how to get you your email or maybe you can send it through Facebook directly, a copy of Returning to an Ancestral Diet uh, as an ebook. And so just to be clear, they leave an iTunes review. Tell us yep. about it on Facebook and they'll get a copy of your cookbook, Returning to an Ancestral Diet, in an ebook form. Ebook form, yeah. I which, think it's ePub. Which is uh, worth 20 bucks. Yep. And uh, free shipping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just seeing if you're listening. It's, it's a long podcast. Uh, if you did enjoy what you heard today, uh, please do let us know through Facebook and iTunes. Share this with someone you know who uh, you'd love to improve their health too. Thanks for listening. Fusion Health Radio is the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast featuring Dr. Michael Smith. This has been A Rebirth of Your Brain, Episode 20. I'm Anthony Santa. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And have fun. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio. 